0: Hi, and welcome for the very first time to The Beagle Has Landed. My name is Laura Hersher. I'm a genetic counselor and a faculty member at the Sarah Lawrence College Joan H. Marks program in human genetics. I'm your host here at The Beagle, where we're going to explore the clinical side of genetics, the technology and the science, but also the way in which the technology and the science are changing people's lives in and out of the medical setting. I'm talking today with blogger, genetic counselor, and not-so-amateur historian Bob Resta. When the producers asked me about my first show, I knew right away I would be inviting this guy. For those who don't know him, Bob Resta is a genetic counselor who's been a part of the field since its early days, early days. He got his MS degree from UC Irvine in 1983 and was certified in 1984. That was in the beginning, right, Bob?
1: It was close to the beginning. Let's say the second book of the Bible.
0: (laughs) So you took the exam in 1984. Um, It's on a computer now, the exam. But that, and it was um, on papyrus?
1: (laughs) Yes. We we had an amanuensis who was uh, writing down our answers for us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Bob's done a lot of things. Prenatal... Twenty-two years cancer for twelve. Uh, he was the editor in chief right. of the Journal of Genetic Counseling back. for six years. Actually, chaired. I love this. He actually chaired an NSGC committee on how to define genetic counseling. But um, you're not the father of genetic counseling.
1: No, I, I don't believe I've uh, I've sired that child.
0: <laughs> I would say you're more like the grumpy uncle of genetic counseling. Is that fair? But no-
1: Benign, but grumpy.
0: Benign. I was like, get off my pedigree. (laughs) So many of you know Bob as the resident philosopher, and maybe the conscience of our field. Um, I had never met, I have sort of a funny story of how we met, Um, some years ago, I think it was about 10, some of my ex-students came to me and said, you know, Laura, you don't know this about yourself, but you are a woman in search of a blog. And I thought about this for like five minutes, and I thought, yeah, I think I am. And so we decided to found the DNA Exchange, and they asked me if I knew anybody else uh, who I thought would be a great blogger. And I thought, I I don't know him, but there's this guy who puts these amazing posts up on the listserv every once in a while, like on a Friday afternoon, he just seems to have something to say. Um, And I, I send him the same message. I wrote him, and I'm like... Hi, Bob Resta. You don't know me, but you are a man in search of a blog. And you were, weren't you? Well, I think my
1: first question is, what exactly is a blog? So I'm <laughs> a little bit behind the times.
0: <laughs> uh, it's possible that that's true. So so Bob's been um, the champ of the DNA exchange ever since. He's really huge success as a, as a blogger, um, very popular, totally kicks my butt. Uh, not that I'm competitive about it or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, your background is actually in anthropology.
1: Yep, I have a, a bachelor's degree and a, a master's degree in anthropology. With the master's, of, a focus on physical, and the undergraduate in both physical and folklore.
0: Oh, and how did that you go from anthropology to genetics?
1: Well, what happened was this is a long story. I'll give you the brief version. After I got my master's degree, I had this existentialist crisis about what I should do with my education. And although I thought anthropology and still think is a fascinating field, I didn't think it really brought concrete benefit to the world. And I felt that my advanced training should be more useful to the world, even in small ways. On top of that, there was a faculty position that opened up where I was at, and about 300 people applied to it, all with PhDs and impressive uh, CVs. And if I knew, the job market, wasn't very good. (laughs) So at around that time, a friend of mine who actually had a PhD in anthropological genetics got a grant with the local medical school to do research in the inheritance of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And they needed basically a schlep to run the study to go to families, take their family history, uh, draw their blood, explain the test results to them, and so on. And he said, Bob, you're full of crap. You'll be good at talking to people. (laughs) He said, why don't you do this? So I did it, and I really enjoyed it. And then someone said to me, you know, there's this field called genetic counseling. This was before there were computers and internets. So the place that I read up on it was in uh, Working Women magazine.
0: That actually brings up a question. So you've worked for for all these years in a field dominated by women. There are some dominating women, you're correct. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and it how's
0: that best, been for you?
1: It's absolutely fine because they're, they're just people. <laughs> uh, and you know, the field is still 95% female, 90 to 95% somewhere in there. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure why, I can see how it started out that way but the program being started at Sarah Lawrence, which was more or less a women's college in its origins by two women, uh, why it stayed that way—it's really hard for me to, to give you a good answer to that one. Except, see, profession seems to be identified that way, and that's the way it is for now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've managed to get along very well with the, with the women in my profession, I believe, uh, and the men in my profession, though I. Oh, we said the toughest time was in the early years at the smaller conference centers that we would go to. There weren't many bathrooms. So at the break, I would go to the men's room and I would be the only man in sight. There would be a line of 30 women. Uh, (laughs) And I kind of drew the line there. I'm friendly with my colleagues, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: felt that was qualified as a a hostile work environment? I don't know if it was hostile. It was awkward, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) As a takeover of the men's room? That's
1: right.
0: Yeah. Um, so I I think as an anthropologist, uh, I, I feel like you were interested in the sort of deep, dark history of clinical genetics um, even before you began. Is that fair?
1: In fact, uh, that's one of the other uh, avenues that got me into genetics. When I was in graduate school in anthropology, I had a, a free slot in my schedule, so I took a course in the history of genetics with uh, Professor Gar Allen, who at the time was basically one of the leading figures in uh, history of biology in the country. And the the focus of his class, uh, which I took a a second continuation of in the next semester, was on the history of uh, genetics and eugenics specifically, and it really opened up my eyes to how genetics could be misused either intentionally or with the best of intentions
0: i I did this um you know intense investigative research before we did this interview by which I meant that i I, I read your c v you um, glanced and I saw that you did your master's thesis on um, genetic counselors' attitudes toward mental retardation
1: toward sterilization of individuals with mental retardation
0: yeah uh, so so first of all. It, brings up the fact that in 1983 apparently we were still saying mental retardation Um, (laughs) were you concerned that genetic counselors were negative toward disability something we talk about as a concern now
1: well so no not really what was going on then was a swing of the pendulum so that uh until the 70s early 70s uh people with uh Developmental disabilities were freely sterilized without anybody knowing about it, meaning they themselves or their families. Mm-hmm. And then the, the trend went in the opposite direction where parents would say, listen, I have this daughter who is now in her teen years. I'm worried about her getting pregnant, controlling. She has awful periods. We'd really like to have sterilization. And it became really difficult to actually do that at the time. Uh, so it was a it was a tough uh, ethical position. I just wanted to know where genetic counselors stood in that.
0: So, but you've continued to um, to look at the history of the field, and I know that some of your research has gone all the way back to the Darwin family themselves. You want to want to tell us what you found when you looked at the Darwins?
1: Oh yeah. Well, first off, Charles Darwin is one of my personal heroes. One of those people who just looked at the world and knew the same thing that everybody else knew, but just was able to look at it differently. Uh, but so
0: we're not are not throwing any shade here, Charles Darwin, but just OK.
1: OK. Uh, but yes. Uh, so what happened was uh, I happened to look at the uh, what was for all intents and purposes, the logo of the eugenics society in England, which was Darwin's pedigree, which included Francis Galton, who is like the er father of eugenics. Uh, and I was trying to figure out their relationship. Because they were supposed to be first cousins. And I, I couldn't figure out who was who on the pedigree. Uh, and this pedigree is called uh, Pedigree Displaying uh, Brilliance, I think, and Ability. And everybody on this pedigree happened to be a male. And everybody happened to be brilliant or had great ability, which I thought was mildly amusing. Uh, so I dug around some more and found that they left off a number of people from the Darwin pedigree. Like, people like who girls? First, I don't know. Yes, the brilliant women, but also the people who were not so brilliant—people who uh, were perhaps equivalent to the uh, dysgenic families that they were railing against—they just never made it onto the Darwin pedigree. Uh, so it was an interesting exploration. None of this information was hidden; it was all pretty easy to find in standard biographies. Uh, but no one ever paid attention to it. And then uh, I had—I gave—I was invited to give a paper. On this an oral paper in England and afterwards someone came up to me it was very angry said I I can't believe you said all that that's that's terrible and blah 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 then I well you know who are you and he said well I'm Darwin's great 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 grandson (laughs) what are the odds of that person being in the audience (laughs) though he did say to me afterwards well you got it right I just didn't like you talking about all that stuff
0: (laughs) You know, genetics is a really small world.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. But that also made me aware of how those people weren't bad people. just that they were blinded by their beliefs.
0: Which can happen to all of us.
1: It does happen to
0: all of us. It does happen to all of us. So so when you were starting out in in genetic counseling – did you find yourself having to explain to everybody? Like, I mean, we, we still—I still sometimes have to explain what a genetic counselor is to
1: people. Um, yeah, I'm a generic counselor.
0: <laughs> was it uh, difficult? What uh, was it like with patients, like what were what were their expectations
1: and what were you, you know, offering? So you know, mostly I was working. I was doing mostly or all prenatal at that point, and it was so built into the into the uh, amniocentesis system at the hospital where I worked, it was a given. So initially patients would say, well, is this some kind of counseling or are you going to look at my genes? And then I just basically explained to them what I was going to do and didn't care what my title was. Mm -hmm. So I I think patients cottoned on to it pretty quickly because they could see the immediate benefit of sitting down and talking with someone, someone who actually cared about them and listened to them and spent more than five minutes with them.
0: And... You were in prenatal counseling over the years that it went from being what I would call targeted for certain people to routine. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Did you think of that as a, did you see that as a big switch, a big change?
1: Yeah, you know, philosophically, you can think of the initial introduction of amniocentesis to women 35 or older as a means of, if you will, leveling the playing field. That is, women 35 and older were all worried, if you will, or affected their reproductive decisions because of the concerns about uh, the increased risks for aneuploidy, specifically Down syndrome. So if you eliminated that risk for them, it encouraged them to then go on to reproduce or delay reproduction, which one can argue one way or another is good or bad, but it allowed that uh, to happen. So it seemed at the time less of a, gee, let's target all disabilities so much as well, let's open up the playing field, level the playing field for these, uh, if you will, elderly primogavitas or elderly primadonas, whatever they were called. Uh,
0: <laughs> hey, hey, hey! You're gonna get me in trouble.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, the truth often does. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, nice. it eventually became a, a more of a targeted. Gee, let's looks like at least from the outside and, and from the inside of people with disabilities let's target these specific disabilities which is true and we just have to live with that i think we just don't like to acknowledge it
0: yeah i think that's true we don't like to acknowledge it um when it became routine did you see a change in how people reacted to to testing so I'm so, interested in that moment because I feel like that's what's happening more broadly in, in genetics, that things are going from use for specific, you know, like we have this going on, we're very concerned, to just we're talking about routine use. You right. know?
1: So let me give multiple answers to your simple question. Uh, first off, you, sort, you see a dramatic increase in anxiety, you know, over a 1% risk. And what it comes down to is, most people back in those days, anyway, if you had an increased risk for Down syndrome, it was somewhere in the range of a half to two percent. Uh, but it became, as far, as far as they were concerned, a ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent chance. So the anxiety, you it increased anxiety in more and more pregnancies, and that sort of wore on me. I didn't like it that pregnancy became a time of, oh, you're another you know, tentative pregnancy, as Barbara Katz Rothman called it. You weren't really pregnant. You held your breath until sixteen weeks, twenty weeks, whenever. Uh, So more and more women doing that, uh, I thought detracts from uh, pregnancy. In terms of expanding the reach of prenatal beyond a targeted group of essentially well-educated upper middle class white women, uh, statistically at my institution at the time, up until about the year 2000, the rate of termination of pregnancies for Down syndrome and other chromosomal disorders was every year 95% without fail, no change. It was pretty consistent. Somewhere around 2000, when things like the triple screen and the quad screen became more readily available and more a wider swath of the population was utilizing it, the termination rates dropped almost overnight to like 60%. So I think it's in part because we are reaching a different demographic who have different attitudes towards termination, disability, et cetera.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, and it, and it matches some of the statistics that you see. Um, you know, there's an old statistic where they say that 90% of the time, if you identify a pregnancy is, uh, that the fetus has Down syndrome, a person will tar- terminate about 90% of the time. And that's, it's, first of all, it's really old. And secondly, the sample was very small and very homogenous. And it was really never a good number to, to work on. Uh, But there's, it still gets used a lot. And um, the summary number, the best thing I've seen in the United States is mid 60s, like Mm -hmm. 65, 67%. But the real, the real answer is what you just said, right? Like, that a summary number isn't very descriptive here, because different pockets of the population will make different choices.
1: And in fact, in places like uh, uh, Norway and Denmark and uh, Sweden and Iceland, the termination rates are still ninety percent so or so.
0: Yeah, UK too. Yeah. Um, so I think that's uh, that's interesting, and um, I don't know how more routine use will affect uh, other areas like like cancer, which it, which is a kind of a big discussion right now. And I don't think I think is interesting about Bob's career is that he switched from being primarily prenatal to being primarily cancer counselor in, like, 2006. And I think it's like, he's like, is it a coincidence that really cancer is now the face of genetic counseling? Or or is it, like, the Bob Resta effect? I, I'm just going to throw that out
1: there to you. <laughs> well, let me make it clear. I actually got into cancer in 98 part-time with my prenatal job. And then it switched to full-time. So I was... There for for a long time, but I'm sure I followed many people. Most people didn't follow me, <laughs> I but think I think it did front running. Uh, I think you were basically front running. <laughs> it's like Mr. <laughs>
0: Zeitgeist. Um, so I haven't out the whole exome yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Mr. Zeitgeist, it's not here. <laughs> um, so Mary Claire King has proposed that everybody get breast cancer susceptibility genetic testing at age thirty, all women. So
1: I think is her actual
0: proposal. What what do you what do you think about that?
1: Well, I, I go round and round on it. One can certainly see or I can certainly see benefits From that, you're going to detect more cases of early stage rather than late stage cancer. You'll be preventing certain cancers. You'll be reducing suffering. You'll be allowing people to live longer who wouldn't have ordinarily, and all that is wonderful. But application in the real world tends to be a lot more complicated, and the benefits may not be as readily realized, and there will be downsides that we didn't anticipate the unknown unknowns, Uh, so I'm not sure how we're going to deal with those. I would feel a lot better if we ran some large-scale pilot programs to find out what the downsides might be and how effective it will be. How will people really act on this? Will people get unnecessary surgeries? Uh, will, will, will results be misinterpreted because there are fewer genetic specialists involved with interpreting the results? So, I, I think there's there's potential for good there, but. Uh, historical experience makes you realize that it never really plays out like it's supposed to.
0: <laughs> so, um, so Bob, I named this podcast The Beagle Has Landed and I, my thinking behind the name is that, you know, so using the beagle to represent Darwin's ship and sort of our, the whole field that um, I feel like for as long as I can remember people in saying genetics is going to be, is going to be, is going to be and uh, in 2018, I sort of feel like now's the moment where it's not just about what's going to be like, it's it's happening now. Uh, testing is increasing, medical use is increasing, we're really very much more than on the verge of introducing genetics into a lot of clinical situations. That's, that's that was my thinking behind the name. So what do you think? Do you do you think a new era is arriving? You've been watching so we've this. We've
1: completed thing. our five year journey and I'm going to sit down and write my notebooks and come up with the theory of evolution of genetic counseling now, <laughs> in my finest state in the south of England. Uh, so I would say that the field of genetics has always been growing. And honestly, I thought it arrived with, we thought it arrived with amniocentesis and then with CVS and then with BRCA testing. So what's been fascinating for me about this field is that it always seems to be arriving. And it really, I've earned, I've learned and earned a lot of respect for genetic counselors who have jumped on to every single advance in in genetic testing. Though, of course, that has tied us into being defined as genetic testers, which I believe is only a portion of what we do with our patients. But that said, aside, genetic counselors have been really at the forefront of doing everything with genetics. Now we're working in laboratories. We're working in administration. We're doing research. We're working in sales. I mean, places I never would have thought we'd go, but I'm also not surprised. Mm-hmm. And that's the,
0: that's the good news. So what, what, uh, what makes you the most nervous? For the future,
1: I don't understand all the new technologies. <laughs> to keep up with it all. Oh,
0: oh, you answered that in a really personal way. You know, <laughs> like here I am going to you, big picture thinker. I mean, like what about the field oh, yeah. should
1: make us the most nervous <laughs> in your life? I Me, personally,
0: I don't understand it.
1: So, for my my concern, I suppose always is uh, in a field of highly ethical people who strive to be ethical in all aspects of their care our blind spots our inability to see our weaknesses I think we can see that in our relationships over the years with of people with disabilities where we get very defensive when we're criticized rather than trying to work with them and understand their position and now I think my concerns are with us in all aspects of our profession with conflicts of interest, uh, uh, financial, uh, uh, philosophical, and all other kinds of uh, conflicts of interest out there. Uh, it, it's hard to see when we're doing something that may not be right.
0: And and you've been sometimes critical of the field, I mean, for a supporter, definitely a supporter, and um, I, I was amused and, and heartened and thrilled for you when you won the natalie weisberger paul award in 2013 but there was a part of me that just thought well does nsgc actually read what you write you know
1: well kudos to the nsgc because they're able to see that gee we have room for people who are willing to hopefully thoughtfully and amusingly criticize us to hold up the mirror so we can sometimes see the blemishes Uh, We don't become a better profession unless we acknowledge our shortcomings and grow for them, grow from them.
0: Yeah, you have definitely been a force for that. Um, And uh, uh, I think I think a force for good in our field.
1: So I, I thank you for that.
0: Plus, you do make people laugh.
1: Well, that that, spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down (laughs) the most delightful way there's a song somewhere but I'm not going to sing it, don't worry
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh come on Um, so that's our show for today I hope you enjoyed it I really want to thank my guest who's been incredible and unbelievably patient with me through this process of getting show number one put together thanks
1: Bob happy to do it Laura
0: If you enjoy this and you want to get a notice when other shows are up, please go to BeagleLanded.com and subscribe to have new episodes show up in your inbox or follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher.